The Startup Executive is a podcast designed to help you become a well-rounded startup executive. The best executives have a good understanding of all aspects of the business. Join us each week to learn from a new go-to-market leader on what is important in their department and what it takes to become an effective startup executive. Today, we're joined by David Kerr, Managing Director at Ellos Ventures, a venture capital firm based in the Midwest. David actually started his entrepreneurial journey in high school, not by selling shoes or mowing lawns, but by importing and selling bicycles from Italy. Since then, his experience has been expansive, from running a trade show business to transitioning to the tech world and serving as the CEO of Tinderbox. Along his winding journey, David even had a multi-year stretch of international work. We are thrilled to have David on the podcast today. This is The Startup Executive. David, welcome to The Startup Executive. Thanks, Grayson. Thanks, Crystal. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, I'm excited to, to have you. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, but David and I actually go back a little bit. And so I'm excited to hear uh, about some of how David was was just getting started out. And I think that's where we want to start with the very first question of just uh, tell us a little bit for the people who've never heard of you that are listening. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, how you became who you are today. Um, and we'll go from there. Great. Thanks, Grayson. So I'm going to go all the way back. So you don't know this about me, but uh, <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll give you the uh, start. So I got my entrepreneurial start in high school, actually. And I had... Okay. Uh, a girlfriend of mine, she had a friend who was a Mormon missionary and had gone to yeah. Italy and loved biking, road biking, and wanted to import bikes from Italy. And so in high school, I partnered with this guy and we started importing bikes from Italy. And that was pre-internet. So when you wanted to buy <laughs> things back then, they didn't have the euro, they had the lira. So I'm dating myself. You would go to the bank, you would buy lira and then you would transfer it to Verona, Italy, and then I'd get a shipment of bikes like, you know, eight weeks later. And then I would travel around the Midwest and I'd sell them to bike stores. These are high-end road bikes. So that was kind of my first entrepreneurial step. And then I did that through college. And then I ended up actually um, selling the business such that it was the inventory and so forth to uh, the largest bike store in Indianapolis, which still exists, Bike Garage oh, wow. of Indianapolis. So that was kind oh, of my nice. start. <laughs> And then, uh, David, that's so funny. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I just want to comment. So some people are selling, you know, shoes. Maybe they have a landscape business, selling ice cream. You were importing bikes from Italy. <laughs> it was a random coincidence, but I, I loved, kind of, I was just always interested in kind of business and entrepreneurship. And so that was my first uh, go. And, you know, when I think about it now, how popular road biking, mountain biking, gravel biking, all these things, it's like, ah. Eh, well, I probably should have stuck around a little longer. Uh, <laughs> what did your parents think? Like, I, I actually always love because I didn't know I, I didn't know that about you. I would have put it like a question in there. What did your parents think about this high school business? Because yeah, that's always interesting to me. You know, I had very conservative parents, but I've got to give them credit that they were very open to it. And back in the day, I ended up sponsoring the national champion from Great Britain, and he would live at our okay. place in the summers. And he would race at the velodrome down at the Major Taylor Velodrome. So my parents, I got to give them a lot of credit that they were really like, this guy came <laughs> and he lived in our house. Uh, name was Russell Williams. And he would go down to the velodrome, this really charismatic British national champion. And he was uh, obviously a great accent, but also. Um, so, you know, it was, it was like my version of, you know, Nike giving, you know, Michael Jordan, the, the shoes that I would, he would ride these bikes around the Midwest and then people would be like, that's cool. I love what Russell. So my parents were really supportive of it. Um, I love that. Anyway. Um, then fast forward college came back to Indiana. Uh, I worked in a think tank in Indianapolis called the Hudson Institute policy research, but always interested in kind of entrepreneurial things. And, uh, through that business or through that organization, I met somebody and we, uh, ended up buying a business through a business broker at the time. And we bought a trade show display company of all things. And then that okay. kind of evolved into a number of different businesses, owned a mortgage bank, owned a manufacturing business, owned an ad agency. And that was most of my twenties. And then this whole 
internet thing came along and technology. I'm like, ooh, that sounds fun. And uh, so my first business opportunity was to go, um, a guy named Bob Compton, who was probably, an, you know, arguably still one of the most successful VCs in the Midwest, um, first investor in Exact Target, first into software artistry, first into interactive intelligence, a primo, sophomore Danic, lots of billion dollar exits. Yeah. He invested yes. in uh, three students at Rose Hallman. They were still students. And he asked me to kind of go and be the, like the adult, the, the business person. Um, and so I was the president or the CEO of this little group called No Inc. So that was really my transition from what I would consider more traditional line businesses into the tech world. And that was back in, gosh, probably in the late 90s, around 2000, something like that, I think, uh, 99 or 2000. That was kind of the start. And I, I can keep going. Obviously, I've got, a, a, I got some years here, so I can give you a little bit more yeah. as well. <laughs> I do want to touch on a couple of things yeah. before we get into kind of like that, that first start. Number one, how did the idea to buy a business, like I feel like that is sort of popular today in terms of like a startup kind of small business entrepreneur culture, this idea of buying business, but how did you kind of get inspired to buy a business uh, just a couple of years out of college? Like what sparked that in you? I never really cared what the business was, but I was always fascinated by the enterprise of business where you served customers yeah. and you had a product that customers were interested in. And I'm much more of an execution person than an idea person. So what I've found over my career is I'm much more take somebody's idea and I think I do a pretty decent job of iterating on it and coming up with strategy post idea and building a team. But I'm not the person, you know, in town, we've got this great innovator, Chris Baggett, who's come up with, you know, pick a number, 10 different companies or 20 or whatever it is. That's not me. I'm much more of take the idea and go from there. I went to a bunch of business brokers and I was, you know, 23, 24 years old, didn't really have any money uh, or did not have any money and uh, said, I'm interested in business. And so candidly, this trade show display business was one I could afford. I had a condominium, I took like a second mortgage on it and it was $30,000 to buy that business. And so I went and I did, you know, my due diligence and, uh, you know, talked to some customers and Funny enough, that business still exists in Indianapolis. It's called Thompson Kerr Displays, and it's still a trade show display company. And it's basically a reseller of trade show displays. So anyway, that's how I got into it and discovered it and then took that business and learned a whole lot of different principles, business principles, having that display company. It kind of seems like it almost became serial, right? Like you sold that one and then you, for the rest of your 20s, you went on to buy more businesses. It sounds like maybe they were in different industries. What did you learn in the first one that you could then apply over and over? Yeah. So I think a couple of things, Crystal, but things I didn't learn, I didn't learn that I needed to be an expert in like, there is something to really spending time, time on task, whatever, you know, this 10,000 hours concept, this Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, mm -hmm. there's something to that. And whatever, you can look at Warren Buffett and go, well, he's owned C's Candy and he's owned a railroad, but he is ultimately a value investor. He's not managing those companies day to day. If you're managing a company day to day, you need to develop that skill, whatever the skill set is. Is it, is it a sales leader? Is it a marketing leader? Is it a finance leader, an engineering leader? And I think I kind of got this view of, hey, I can, because I actually owned a number of these companies at the same time and they were very disparate but I didn't have the capital overhead to really surround myself with really talented team members. So at each company you had people running it and they were talented, but they weren't senior leaders. And so it, I got in over my head ultimately. And so I would say that's what I learned was pick a discipline, pick, pick a focus. Ideally, I think what I've learned in later life is use other people's money. <laughs> you know, we can talk more about that later as well. People that have a deeper checkbook and a deeper pocketbook that are willing to risk on a person or an idea. So back then I was doing everything on my own or with bank loans and things like that. So those are the things I would say I learned. And then also the value of having really talented people where you have blind spots around you and next to you that you're willing to pay. When did you start realizing that you have blind spots? Because I think that, you know, being young, that is something that you don't realize is how many blind spots you do have. I'm interested, like, if there were any stories 
from back then, you're like, oh, wow, maybe I should have done that thing. I don't know if that was your experience, but yeah. yeah. Too long, I felt pretty smart, like I knew all these things. And it was the first couple of smacks in the face where you're going to miss a payroll or you can't get that next round of, in in that case, it wasn't venture funding, but it was bank funding or candidly, even a lawsuit uh, around some issues that you're like, oh my God, maybe I'm not that smart. So to me, it took some of those humbling experiences to make you realize that one, you need a thought partner in business. So and typically you want a thought yeah. partner that's complementary. So you want somebody that has a different set of skill sets than you do. I learned, and I think I, this, I think I did okay, even in the early years to delegate because I could, you know, a manufacturing plant, like I'd go out to be part of the team and work on the floor and I'd weld stuff or I'd do things like that. I didn't know how to do that or I didn't know how to run a CNC machine. But I think delegating was one of the things that I've I did okay then, but I've gotten better at over time and really empowering people around that team. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about owning the business? It's a big job. And you mentioned that you weren't an expert in all the things. So what would be some pros and cons for someone who wants to run their own business, but doesn't necessarily have those ideas? Yeah. And and just one clip. Find something that's affordable, right? Yeah. That's what you did. Find something affordable, but outside of that. Yeah. And lots. Of, so I've had friends through the years that have, you know, bought and sold businesses. And, you know, obviously tech has been my world for the last, I guess, 30 years now. But in the early, in the early days, it's really finding, you know, I, I'm a go to, everybody comes to a business from a certain skill set. Usually it's finance or it's engineering or it's a coder or a sales and market. I think mine was around go to market and generally customer interface. I'm not just going to say sales, but like figuring out what a customer wants, building a relationship, building a rapport with them, and then delivering that in whatever it was, whether it was bikes or whether it was, you know, some manufactured wire good or, or software. I think for people that want to buy a business, I think lots of people have to have a passion for it. And that was my passion was building teams and selling. And so lots of people look at something and they're like, well, like I have a buddy, he he got off the corporate deal and he bought a business that is kind of like, we, we call it the poop truck. He's the poop truck guy, but it, 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 he does the, the removal, the removal of sewer tanks and you know, the waste mm, in sewer yeah. tanks or in, uh, what do you have in your backyard? If you live in the, Oh, well, you need a sump pump for it. Yeah, it's, it's not a sump pump, but it's, it's like your your septic system. It's your septic system. Septic. Mm, okay. There it is. He, he doesn't have a, he didn't grow up wanting to do that. It wasn't his passion. <laughs> he was looking for a business that he could be his own boss and he could do these things. And now, so he loves kind of the idea of really figuring out how to serve the customer. What's the geography? What's the logistics? What's the route optimization? Hey, what are the follow-on businesses from that? Now he's got these routes and he's thinking about doing hood cleaning for restaurants in these kind of Southern Indiana rural areas. So to me, I think either you have a passion for the business. And so you want to really be a, whatever it is, you want to save the world and you want to create an environmental business or you like fashion or you like the business of business. You want to be your own boss. You want to make a certain income or generate wealth for you or your family. So I think there's, you have to know yourself on that what skill sets you bring, but then also what's going to be your passion about the business. And then I also think you need to assess your risk profile. And um, so knowing all of those three things, so you spoke on an example of like a friend who's probably, you know, older than you were when you went out and bought your first business. Would you recommend like 23, 24 year old, if they're trying to get into business, they know that they want to run their own business to go out and buy a business like you did, or, or kind of what are your thoughts having done it? Um, just knowing now, like yeah, all the opportunity out there. So, so a couple of comments on this, and I'll go, I'm, I'm going to come back to this risk appetite and this risk profile, and knowing that about yourself. But also, whenever you guys are talking to anybody, whether it's on the podcast or elsewhere, everybody like think of the bias that somebody's bringing to it. So, like, whatever your shoulder hurts, and you go to a surgeon, they're going to be like, "Well, you should cut it." You go to a nutritionist, they're going to say, change your diet. You go to an act, you know, whatever. So, so my bias is small business and building a business. So I want that to be the caveat, first of all, but that's not for everybody. I think the thing you have to do is you have to assess your risk profile and your risk appetite. And there is no right or wrong on that continuum. I mean, I have friends that went to work for Lilly 
30 some odd years ago and, you know, went into these retirement packages. Like I think 30 years at Lilly for me would, would like, it just, that wouldn't be my thing. They've had fabulous careers, pretty low risk in the sense of, you know, you're always going to have, you know, mama, papa, Lily behind you for benefits and whatever it is kind of thing. So the first thing you need to know is what your risk profile is and your risk appetite is. And then I think depending on that, then you can figure out how you want to enter owning your own business, starting your own business, that kind of thing. And lots of people are like, well, I need more money in the bank. Well, maybe it's not more money in the bank. Maybe that's your risk appetite. Well, you know, we want to have yeah. our first kid and we want to have, or we want to do it before our first kid or, or whatever. Or I need to pay off my college loans. All that goes into assessing your personal risk profile, which probably will change over your lifetime. For some people, your, your risk appetite grows over time. And for a lot of people, it diminishes over time and you become le- more, more risk averse over time. Have you observed that in yourself? I have. Yeah, I have seen that in myself. I, was, I had a big appetite for risk or, or a willingness to take risks. And it was naive risk taking. Like it was doing things that were not, um, in certain cases, like taking a second mortgage in your house, not the best idea. Or... <laughs> Um, floating a private placement that you personally guarantee, not a great idea, but, (laughs) but then if you own a hundred percent of it and you're not sharing that with, you know, investors or venture folks or whatever, then you reap all the rewards from it. If it goes well, if it goes to shit, then you reap those rewards then as well, or, or whatever the cons of it. So one thing, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you before moving into kind of so like you know the next steps after you know that that twenties period was in college. Did you like know about venture capital? Did you ever think like, hey, I want to be a venture capital uh, in the future, or did you just kind of happen into it? I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, so about that in college, I wrote a couple articles for a little magazine called Business Today, and uh, okay. one of the articles that I so so. I, I went to Princeton. So this business today was a business magazine, obviously. And then you would go interview alumni doing things. And one of the people I interviewed was at, I think it was, at, it, it was not Sequoia, but it was Sierra Capital. And I wrote this whole article. And it's funny at the time, like, I don't know why I didn't pursue that back then. Cause I think, oh my God, if I had done that <laughs> rather than coming back and buying like a trade show business. And I'd hung out with those guys that I'd interviewed. Yeah, life's been good. I'm not complaining, but that would have been a very different trajectory jumping into that in the uh, late 90s. But it just like I that's probably the first interface. Then I didn't think a whole lot about it until I started running venture backed companies. And you're like, oh, that's kind of it's kind of an interesting job. And so so I there was an early stage in college that I actually wrote this thing, interviewed a couple of, you know, VCs back in the day when VC was very new. Yeah. And then didn't really think about it until I got into venture back businesses and being an operator in venture back businesses. What we should do is we should find that article. We should include it in the show notes. Uh, is it published online anywhere or is it? If you went to business today, you know, probably back in 1987 <laughs> or something like that. So. The archives. Okay. We'll do some data. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see about it. Yeah. No, that'd be awesome. One more thing. Can we just say in college, we, we want to get to VC, but you, it took you in half an hour to say that you went to Princeton. That's awesome. But then what about what you studied? I don't think it was super traditional business. No, so can you talk politics. a little bit about that? Like in, in most colleges, you okay. call it political science, but it was politics, did a little bit of economics, um, but it's a liberal arts school unless you're an engineer. So there's no business there. Yeah. So how did you take that first step though, after school? Like, why didn't you go into politics? Well, my first, my first step was working at the Hudson Institute. So it was a policy, it was a think tank. Okay. And so it was a policy research institute and, you know, went to work for like Mitch Daniels and a whole bunch of, again, I'm dating myself, but it was at the time it was a whole bunch of ex uh, Reagan. Like I worked for like Reagan science advisor, a guy named Jay Keyworth or somebody from the department of defense and wrote about Anyway, it was like getting paid a tiny little bit for writing papers like you did in college, but now you got paid for them. Okay, so moving us on to 
one of the core things I think you called it out as well, but wanted to kind of mention it again, it coming into businesses as like that operator taking it from, you know, one to 100, essentially. So was Tinderbox, was that kind of like the, the, the same story? I saw you joined a couple of years after it was founded. How did you kind of get involved yeah. there and kind of catch us up to, to that point? So one of the things I learned too late, well, it's not too late, it's never too late. But late, later in my career is I want to work with people that I know, I respect, I like, I appreciate all these kinds of things. I didn't know that early in my career. It was more I wanted to build businesses and I wanted to you know, make money or create value or these kinds of things. So I think I told you the little knowing story, three students at Rose Holman. We sold that company, sold it to a big venture back company out on the West coast, I was SVP of North American sales for them. After raising $120 million, they essentially bankrupted the company, shut it down. I bought all the mm-hmm. no ink assets back and I got lucky and I restarted the company and I got lucky and I sold it again. The acquiring company took me to Europe for four <laughs> years and I went to Europe for four years. When I was coming back on just a total lark, a friend of mine was the founder and CEO of Angie's List. His kids went to the international school. I was coming back. My kids were getting back. I'm like, what do you think of the international school? This will lead to your answer to question, but it, but it's important. <laughs> yeah, catch us up. So I went to work for Bill Osterley for one year and one day at Angie's List and learned a lot, enjoyed it, appreciated it. But it was kind of a little bit of an offshoot of my traditional enterprise kind of SaaS, or at the time it was called ASP. Then I got recruited by Eric Lefkowski to go work at Groupon to run their home and auto division. Eric's taken three companies public in his career, maybe four now. Only other person to do that's like Steve Jobs at the time. I was enamored by, you know, he's a billionaire, just all these kinds of things. He was not a pleasant person to work for, at least for me. (laughs) And it was a bit of a toxic, like it was a really cool environment. A lot of really smart people, you know, Amazon, McKinsey, all these kinds of things. I lasted 10 months there and was like, oh my God, I want to work with people I enjoy, I appreciate. Like I got enamored by these intangible, these whatever, these metrics, these celebrity-like metrics or something. And, you know, at the time making more money than I ever made and all those kinds of things. So anyway, Tinderbox was to go back to work with one of the guys or work for one of the guys who was one of the Rose Holman entrepreneurs that I'd started oh, nice. 15 ish plus years ago. Cause I was like, and I knew almost everybody on the board, Dorsey, Mike Fitzgerald, Christian Anderson, a bunch of kind of local folks, Dustin Sapp was the CEO. So I took a big step back in pay a much smaller, you know, I was running like a couple hundred million dollar division at Groupon, but I was just like, I want to work with people. I enjoy, I appreciate that are not assholes, just all the whole thing. So that's that's how I got to Tinderbox. Sorry, that was a long story, but it's kind of it's important in the arc of how you get there. And then, so just a little bit of of context, I guess, on Tinderbox, when kind of what it was, and then a little bit of the context of building that and then selling it again uh, this time to to another company. Uh, so talk through just a little bit of the the Tinderbox story. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, we were talking earlier about making sure, you know, your blind spots and where you kind of work. So, so working with Dustin, I really enjoyed working with Dustin. I really enjoyed that entire team. It was a a fabulous culture. Um, it was back when people worked in person and you'd like, you went to the office (laughs) together and you'd go to lunch together and all that. So it was, it was really good culture. Again, I've never said I really, it was interesting problems, but kind of boring problems. Like it was document management. Like it's not the sexiest thing in the world. But I, I, I helped there. One of my strengths is around uh, enterprise sales and go-to-market and these kinds of things. So I helped there to land some of our largest, well, to land our first seven-figure deals with, with multiple companies. Dustin's strength is in engineering, product, finance, mine's more go-to-market, customer success, things such as that. So I had sales, customer success, business development, partnerships, things like that. So we were partners and friends, and then some issues came up and uh, created some difficult times. He, he stepped away, and I stepped into the CEO role. And the business had flattened out a little bit in terms of its growth at that time. So there were some challenges around managing that and managing spend. And we took the team down by, I don't know, 25-ish, 30% kind of thing on like one of my first days or weeks kind of in the CEO seat. But 
anyway, we moved it into a decent position and, and ended up having a, um, a decent outcome for everybody around the table. Not a home run, but it was, a, I think, a pretty good outcome. And it's also really a lot of fun now to see people that have stayed through the transition are in really interesting positions, doing really well, really have moved quite nicely in their careers. Yeah, I personally heard a lot of great things about Conga. I remember they were the unlimited free meals, right, in Indianapolis. That was uh, they were. Yeah, was... I missed that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that you said there that I'm interested in, like diving into tactical, was kind of this, uh, you know, ability that you realized within yourself: enterprise sales, go to market. So, what types of things are you talking about? Like, what types of things? strengths did you notice in yourself or did you develop that actually helped you when it comes to enterprise sales and those types of things that's it seems like such a black box from my perspective yeah and it's it's evolved over the years and obviously more and more technology is kind of wrapping around it in terms of top of funnel and how you identify the appropriate companies and icps and ideal customer profiles and things like that ultimately though and i i still fundamentally believe this People buy from people that they trust, that they appreciate, that they like, that they can learn something from. Like, I don't know. I was the other day I was at a store, I was looking at a river surfboard of all things. And I was at one <laughs> store and they were they knew nothing about any of them. I went to this other store and this woman like took 20 minutes and explained every last detail and like that's the store I will buy it from because I appreciated her knowledge. I appreciate, you know, and I've done research. I've read blog posts and all these things. So I think what I have been able to do through the years is, is build relationships, do a, a pretty decent job of identifying within an organization, basically doing account mapping. So where's the budget? Where's the champion? Where are the influencers? Where are the obstacles and challenges? Is this a nice to have? Is this mission critical? You know, everybody always talks about ROI. Most of that's bullshit. A lot of it's soft ROI. There's there are a few products out there that really have hard dollar ROI, but you can show productivity enhancement. So to me, I guess over the years I've learned about myself that I'm okay and pretty decent about convincing people of those yeah. kinds of things and writing a six or seven figure check. And and to me, so much now is focused on like getting a demo. Ninety percent of really good enterprise salespeople like. The product is so far in the back. It, it, like nobody's looking at like, <laughs> hey, can it? You know, is this button pink or purple? And does it do this or that? But so many people are so focused on getting to the demo, and then talking for. And I know I'm talking a lot here, but talking for the full time versus listening, building a relationship, solving a problem, being a strategic partner. So that's I think over time I've learned that about myself, that I'm okay at it. I'm pretty decent at it. And that I, I've been able to help others get there as well. So a follow-up to that, sorry, I've had this question on my mind forever. And David, I feel like you're the one uh, who I want to ask it to. So again, sort of bringing current events and everything into this a, a little bit, I've seen talk around a future where like maybe an AI chooses like makes purchasing decisions and stuff like that. I don't know if you've seen anything similar, but does does that change like enterprise sales? Or do you think that that's like so far down the line? Like, because there was just talk about like APIs, like doing the selling and the buying from each other and these like approval processes that are, I don't know, I've just seen stuff around that. And I'm interested to see, like, do you think that AI will change how like enterprises make buying decisions? I know it's kind of like a, a weird rant, but uh, I feel like uh, yeah, I'm interested in your perspective. I think it'll have an influence. And I think, you know, right now, um, I've been reading a whole lot of things about it. just invested in a generative AI company, like who hasn't at this point in time <laughs> in some <laughs> respects, and there's so many of them out there, but I'm not convinced of the, and I'm not smart enough to know like the Elon Musk, it's going to take over the world and destroy us all. <laughs> I still view it as more, it's going to enhance and make more productive lots of folks. So, so as I sit here and think about enterprise sales, will it, you know, will the senior account executive be a dinosaur? I still believe humans appreciate, even if it's virtual like this, some human connection, somebody at the other end of the line. Like I love Amazon and they've made it so easy to return things and you return half your stuff, it seems like. But every now and then, like it'd be great to just call and go, hey, 
can you tell me something a little bit more about this? And, and so I think AI will continue to add productivity, make people, you know, I think there'll probably be fewer and fewer of these maybe senior account executives doing enterprise sales because they'll be more productive and who they identify and the, and the ICP and all these kinds of things. And maybe it'll help with pricing and packaging and the decision-making on the buyer side will it be enhanced. But I still think there will be people talking to people and, you know, I don't know, I don't know how that signature is going to go, but I don't, but it's hard for me to see a totally automated if it's, if there's anything more than a commoditized. So the step above a commoditized product, you're still going to have a little human interaction. Grayson, do you have a take on that? I'm super interested to see like these APIs, like, like a, a, an API selling or an AI selling to like an AI buyer and like marketing through APIs. So I don't know too much about it, but I was just interested in, in getting David's opinion on it. In a decade from now, like there's a lot of talk obviously around AI. Some people are like, well, this is a big hype cycle. I definitely believe this is, you know, internet, mobile, AI is is another step function change in kind of our, you know, it, it is a really meaningful, I don't believe it is a hype cycle. Many you know, people are like, well, crypto or Web3 was a hype cycle. It was, I still think you're going to have elements of the blockchain continue to infuse. So, so sure, there were, there were hype elements to it, but I still think that that will be, I think 10 years from now, we're still going to have blockchain technology more and more infused. And so that fundamental underlying technology of crypto and Web3 will still be prevalent in our world. Just like AI, I think will be infused in everything we do. I see that. Before we go to Alice Ventures and move on with your career, I want to talk about one more thing. It's a little selfish because yeah. I'm interested in it. You mentioned you went overseas for four years. Yeah. Like, how does that even start? How are you approached to do that? And then how do you actually make a decision? I mean, that was a huge change for your family when they eventually came to join you. Can you just start anywhere? So again, this is a know yourself and a risk profile thing again. So mm. so I'd sold what I call kind of no ink to, and I'd sold it to GHX, Global Healthcare Exchange. And so I was the head of mobile for them and kind of doing a like an earnout period of time with them. And every time I'd meet with my boss, the CEO, at GHX, I'd say like, I'd do all my little metrics. And then I'd be like, Hey, anything else? Like I'm raising my hand, anything else, any other opportunities? And I went in one day and he's like, Oh man, I'm like, what's going on? He's like crazy day. Like our, our president, our, you know, essentially our head of EMEA or, or Europe turned in their resignation today. I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'm like, Oh, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, you know, I'll go even just as an interim just for like, and so Two weeks later, I was in Germany, and then three months later, my family moved over. So that's risk profile. It's, it's asking the question, being open to opportunity, but also it's not for everybody to be like, I didn't know what I was getting into, but it was, I would say arguably for my family, it was the most impactful time of our lives. The kids were like at a perfect age, and so they really became global citizens. For me, it was really fascinating professionally because things here had become just a little bit kind of routine and I'd been doing this kind of mobile thing for several years and so forth. So it was really different and it was really a highlight of my, of my career. So for people that want to travel abroad and do things like that, figure it out. And the world's getting smaller and smaller and flatter and flatter. There's so many opportunities. Yeah. It really turns you into a global citizen if you go out there with an open mind and it, it, it was really a special time. David, one of my fears is getting pigeonholed in my career. And so it's really exciting and motivating to hear someone who, you know, well into their career, they're getting these great opportunities and saying yes to them. And also it's changing their family's lives. So that's just really exciting yeah, and, to hear. And a lot of it is, is knowing what your, you know, I keep hitting on this, but knowing what your risk profile is and what you want to do. I think so many people are, they're always like, and I get it, like they're fearful and, and I don't come from a family with a bunch of like people usually do things for financial reasons, but hard work, grit. And I know these are kind of a little bit of platitudes, but it is amazing, like doing what you say you're going to do uh, and taking those opportunities and raising your hands. And even when I was, you know, talking about like friends at Lilly, a lot of them had really interesting opportunities to move around the globe or different divisions and all that. So even within whatever you go work at salesforce in the tech world like raising your hand to move into different areas um i think is pretty you know I, I know some people there that have gotten some pretty interesting opportunities by 
lifting their head up and raising their hand. Yeah. And for that period of time when you worked then for the bigger company after selling yours, um, what advice or motivation would you give people? I think that can be hard sometimes, right? You're running this company, you are making decisions, you are driving, and now you are reporting to someone. Yeah. So what I like, what I told a bunch of the folks at Conga, like I would have loved to have stayed through the transition from Tinderbox to, or from Octave to Conga. And I just, I wasn't invited to, and that's not unusual, whatever the CEO or the CFO are like first ones to go be patient a little bit. Like people sometimes, and especially, you know, whatever this is, People of certain generations sometimes are more impatient than others, I will say, but be patient a little bit. And like, so some of the people that have stayed at Conga and have been patient and they've put up with some of the shit that, you know, happens in a bigger organization and like the grinding, they've ended up in some really unique positions that just by having a little patience, raising their hand, you know, taking cover at times when it doesn't seem so great. Like, and that's basically, I mean, I had some motivation because I had this little earnout of selling the company, but I really was tired of doing what I was doing. And so I was just each time, I, w- I wasn't like, hey, promote me. Hey, give me another opportunity. But I was always like, hey, anything else I can help you out with? Like, I got extra hours in the day, basically. What do you need? So so to me, there's patience and then raising your hand, keeping your eyes open. Yeah, that's great advice. All right. After Octave, did you head to Alice Ventures or was there a pit stop? Yes. Oh, okay. No, nope. okay. Alice Ventures. Yep. All right. And now you're a managing partner. Is that correct? That's accurate. Uh, yeah. What it's would you managing s- director, but everybody has different titles at these things. So yes. Okay. And what would you say a managing director does day to day? How, how is your day split or your week split? So venture is roughly five different things. Raise money, source deals, win deals, Support your portfolio company of deals that you've won and then exit those companies, harvest those deals. And that happens over a 10-year period of time in a fund. So my day-to-day right now is supporting portfolio companies, uh, sourcing deals, and starting to get into that harvest period in one of our funds to where you're looking for opportunities to exit. Do you have a favorite one sector of those five? I like supporting the portfolio companies because I've got an operator's background. And then so if people will have me, you know, like if they'll, lots of times people just want to, everybody says they're a value added investor and everybody says they're going to bring you all these. And most people, when they're raising money, they just want the money. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, they want the contacts and they, or they want the introductions and these things, but but there are people that are that are looking for, like, they're 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 looking for something, you know, whether it be a counselor, a mentor, a coach, a sounding board, a therapist, whatever it is. <laughs> so, but I I like that part of it. I like the supporting the portfolio companies. And then before they become portfolio companies, do you hear pitches? Yes. Okay. So that that is a, you know, once you've raised a fund. Kind of everybody, you know, that's a, there's a public document and then you'll do some kind of PR. So everybody knows, hey, you've got 50 million or a hundred million or a billion dollars or whatever somebody has. So then everybody will send you emails, pitches, LinkedIn connections, because everybody is trying to raise money for something. And And so what you have to do is you take that funnel and you narrow it to, okay, what fits within our criteria because there's a lot of things that just don't fit. Like we don't do hard tech, we don't do biotech, we don't do med device, we don't do those kinds of things. So we're SaaS, we're B2B SaaS, we have a geography, we have a stage. So you do that. And then you you get on Zoom calls like this and you listen to a pitch. And then you kind of, you know, there's there's a lot of art, which is a way of saying, you know, <laughs> a lot of subjectivity to it. And then there's, uh, and then there's some quantitative elements to it where you're underwriting a deal and you're really trying to understand the founder archetype and profile that fits with what you're looking to invest in as well. And if you were to maybe unveil the curtain on some of the subjectivity that comes with like evaluating an investment from like the VC perspective, like what types of things 
are you looking for specifically when you're talking to these businesses outside of the standard? Do they fit our B2B SaaS? Do they fit kind of like our, yeah. our series A or series uh, B or whatever specific thing that Allos focuses on? What are some of the other, you know, more subjective things um, that might tip you either? Yes, you know, we want to invest in this team or this founder or no, you know, seemed like a decent person, but we're not going to uh, move forward. Yeah. Like, what are some of those things that you talk about and, and think about? Yeah. So, so again, this will, you know, if you go talk to another VC, it'll be a totally different answer, but also they might be at a different stage and so forth. So, so we do seed stage and we do series A such that it is a Midwest series A. So we're not doing these coastal, like hundred million dollar <laughs> series A kind of things. So the first thing, it, you know, it, this comes back to a people business. And so you are, you are evaluating that individual on these very subjective, but ideally have they lived the problem before? Are they a second time entrepreneur? Are they a first time CEO or entrepreneur? What kind of success or failure have they had in the past? And there's no, there's no judgment on success or failure. It's really kind of heavy done this one or two or three times before. You do kind of like I was saying, people buy from people they like and respect and so forth. You, you, in the first 30 minutes, you get a sense for the type of individual this is, their passion for what they're doing. Are they, are they in this, which there's no, there's nothing wrong with this. Do they own, you know, hundred percent, 70, 80% of this, and they would just be happy to sell this for 10 to $15 million, make their six, seven, $8 million which is great, but that's not our, that's not our business. So you're trying to, you're trying to figure that out. You're trying to figure out, I want people to be crazy, but not too crazy. Like you gotta be crazy enough to go start the business and you gotta be crazy enough to go, whatever, call Coca-Cola's CMO to go sell them something and keep fighting for this and give up your, you know, cush job elsewhere. So you gotta be that crazy but not, not over the line, uh, crazy. And that, and you know, maybe in today's political world, I shouldn't be using the word crazy, but you have to be, uh, adventurous enough or whatever the word is for that. So those are some of the subjective things. And then, you know, you're evaluating product market fit, which when it's a really stage, maybe they've sold to their, you know, friends and family and you're, that's great. That's an early kind of beta test. Does it work? Does somebody get value? But you don't really know, is this going to be, um, could this get to be a 20, 30, 40, $50 million company? Is that something you would ask then? Like, so it's like, yes, it's great that you've sold a million ARR already, but that million ARR comes from 80% of companies like in Indianapolis who are yeah. our friends with your board or essentially. So do you dive into like where yeah. their error and stuff is coming from? Okay. 100%. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Cool. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, real quick, your, what is your listenership? Is it all Indianapolis? A lot of Indianapolis, I would okay. say, just well, given. I'm going to use an Indianapolis and he might get mad at me, but he's a friend. But like <laughs> Cluster Truck, Cluster Truck did really well in Indianapolis. People know Chris yeah. Baggett and there was a whole effect of that. And, and that's actually a B2C, not a B2B. Chris had more challenges going to other markets because there was certain value in, in the, the brand he had was personally built and the brand he built yeah. there. So, so that's an example where it didn't, it didn't transfer as naturally or easily elsewhere. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. Another part of your job that I'm curious about is raising money, like building the fund. Now, it's a large sum of money. Um, not that everyone gives a large sum of money, but how do you convince people to give their money to you, right? There are probably a thousand funds your size. Why, right. why your fund? Yeah. So what you do is you come up with a thesis and you come up with a portfolio construction. So you tell people... Hey, we're going to invest in this geography, these stage companies. Here's our, you know, we're focused on reg tech or we're focused on HR tech or these, these kinds of things. Can you share Alice just to give some context for that? Oh, sure. Sure. So, so our geography is the Midwest and we typically say back when people drove places a five hour from Indianapolis or Cincinnati. So, so essentially kind of from Madison, Wisconsin, down to Nashville, from Pittsburgh over to St. Louis is kind of the geography. Now we've done a few things outside of that. Then at stage, we talk about stage. So we want companies ideally with 100,000 in ARR up to about 2 million in ARR. 
we are B2B SaaS. We're generalists. And part of that's because we're in the Midwest. Um, and you don't have like a high concentration of maybe cyber or, or, or just certain, or we actually have a decent amount of um, kind of sales and marketing tech in the Midwest because you've got companies where, that have created other leaders and founders. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of where we, that's where we focus our. So then to go convince people, a lot of it is based on it's it's the relationship because you're asking people to make a commitment you're, and we're going to high net worth individuals, family offices and institutions, but institutions are a smaller piece of ours. They're, well, by dollar, they're about 50%, but by number of LPs, they're less than 10%. So it's, it's the relationship and it's performance. But then but you you are, you know, investing their money. They have to trust you. Like you said, right. probably as a person. Right. Yeah. And so that's, you know, larger institutions. So again, we'll use Indianapolis as an example. Um, I don't know. Let's, there, there's probably a hundred billion dollars in Indianapolis. With, with, if you look at Lilly Endowment, Lumina, IU Health, Purdue Research Foundation, they've, they've not invested it to my knowledge, in a single like local fund um, or in the Midwest. But what they have is they have teams of people and they go out and they go do all this research and analysis based on performance. So they go look at Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia and Benchmark and, and they go write $100 million checks to, to go put in those. They, even though we have relationships with those folks, they don't want to have a hundred managers and they don't want to go write a bunch of $5 million checks. Mm -hmm. So we've got to go find people that are not kind of in that club that are below that club that yeah, trust us, value the relationship that we have, but then also want to get in this asset class. And so maybe they can't get, you know, Hey, if I could put our fund into Sequoia, I'd certainly think about it kind of thing, but, but there's people that want to be, there's people that want to be in this asset class and they want to diversify their portfolio, whether it's a family office or whatever, they want to have real estate and securities and bonds, but they want to have alternative investments as well. Does so then they will go, it's portfolio allocation for them as well. Sure. Curious if Ellis has like a fund right now that it just, or I'm sorry, an area that they're investing in right now. Like you just feel really good about it. You're excited about it. If it's not confidential or anything. No, I, I mean, I, I do think it's really going to be interesting to see. I mean, AI is getting embedded into everything. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it disrupts certain things. And we've got some companies now in our portfolio, like Authentics, They've been doing conversational AI. They're an Indianapolis-based company for several years. Now they're getting some tailwind from all the hype around um, the generative AI piece, but they've been they've been doing that. So we don't have a lot of B to C in the Midwest. Um, it's just we don't have we don't have any successes, and typically then that that affects your talent pool essentially because people usually companies beget companies beget companies. People go work at a company, they get to a certain level, they see it and they're like, I could do this. I've got an idea. I'm going to go start. So we have a lot of B2B. To me, I like industries that have not gone through digital transformation yet, a little more boring. So like regulatory tech, super boring, <laughs> super niche. But there's all kinds of opportunity in that area. Companies that just, they have to, they have to comply with regulation at a local state, federal level. And they've been doing it on spreadsheets, like Excel runs the world. Well, there turns out there are ways that you can automate these things to do better. So I like that. I do think watching AI get infused into a number of different areas, I think is pretty interesting. Um, I also like things I can understand, like that I feel like I could use, I could benefit from, or, or you know, in my roles as an operator that I'm like, ah, I get that. Like, that was a real problem. We really struggled with it. That would help people be more productive and more, uh, more valuable. It's the people thing again. You keep coming back to that. Yeah, yeah. S something that's super interesting to me, David. I'm interested in your experience 
you know, having invested in plenty of different companies, um, maybe you've got two different personas. And I want to hear your experience with these types of personas, like persona number one, like, you know, very little, maybe industry experience, but like super kind of go getter type persona, um, seems like very credentialed stuff like that versus what I think like a lot of the companies that you guys invest in are, you know, maybe not a traditional, like went to Ivy league and then did X, Y, Z, but was super good at ag tech. For example, uh, I know there's, there's a company I'm forgetting the name of them yeah, off the top Traction of my head. Ag. Traction ag. Yeah. Like, so what has been your, your different experience with kind of like the, the young, like, you know, Voyager, or I don't even know what the word would yeah. be versus like the more experienced they've done this in the industry, but now they're kind of creating a tech business around it. Like, what are the, what are the different things that each run into? I mean, obviously both work, we've seen both work, but I'm yeah. interested in kind of your experience uh, with so, those. So, so we have, um, we have a concept at Alice of, and, and lots of funds have this where we, we haven't, we have alpha investments or seed stage investments that are not going to move the needle on the fund we really want to do core investments. And so typically we're, when you think about this portfolio construction, like in this current fund, we're going to have, you know, maybe 12 to 14 companies, but we'll have maybe six or seven of these alpha investments. And the idea would be two or three of those would graduate. So these are smaller checks. They're not going to move the needle on the fund, even if they did really well, but, but you're like, Oh, we really got to know these people. And we moved, we moved them into a core, one of those 14 slots. Um, so we have a, I would say, kind of a supersized alpha investment. There, it's twin brothers up in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin, David. Oh, that's right. And, and these it. guys are uh, these guys, you know, never been entrepreneurs before. They started they started a um, an alternative data company focused on retail investors, and so we did a we did a large alpha in them these guys you know just kind of off the charts bright <clears throat> there's also a risk factor that you're doing you know I've, I've invested in a husband and wife team three brothers twins but there's always risk in that because somebody gets a divorce you have a family issue somebody sides with this mm -hmm. whatever um but these guys like they're so uh, I forget the word you used, but kind of like they are they're experimenters and they're just yeah. they're really scrappy. They're really capital efficient. I think they have eight people now or something like that. Like they've got the longest runway in the world with this little capital <laughs> raise they've done. Retail investing has, you know, not done exactly really well in the last year, but they just keep chipping away like they just signed a interesting deal with a large, really well-known player in the investment space. They've, they just continue to grow really nicely with their, the people that are buying their alternative asset data. So it's stuff like it's called quiver quantitative. You, you can go find them on like TikTok or Instagram and they'll post something on like, you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband investing in NVIDIA. They'll get like a million views on TikTok. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I think they're, <laughs> Their biggest one was a couple million, I don't know, maybe three or four million views or something. So it's kind of fun seeing that versus like you were yeah. saying, Traction Ag. Ian's had several, the CEO founder there, he's had companies before. He's really embedded in that space, a more experienced entrepreneur. And it's just a different, it's a different ride from our perspective. I'm interested then. So are, are the, the younger uh, brothers that you were talking about, when they come to you, is it more of like mentorship? expertise whereas like maybe ian comes to you and it's more like hey you know can you get me connected to to so and so like what are the different things that you know those different personas need from like a venture capital uh firm you know it's interesting you say that because it's a it's definitely a mix so i don't think i'm telling anything out of school here but like the the brothers are more like like they're just into like they're coding and the way they're doing things. And so we have a bi-weekly call set up, but on occasion they'll, they'll just be like, Hey, here's, here's my update. Do we really need to talk? And I'll, <laughs> I'll say stuff like, Hey, you know, you guys are a fully remote company. You know, what would be a cool culture thing is if y'all got together in Chicago or where, like fly everybody in and they're like, really? What? Like, why? like just try it. And they do it. And they're like, wow, that's, that's a great idea. Like it's amazing. <laughs> like, people shared ideas and all that stuff. 
Ian um, will be more. Yeah, it's just a different. It's a different stage. So he's not yeah. done a venture backed company before necessarily, and so he's saying, you know, okay, at this stage, if we're going out to raise, what metrics do we need to have? What kind of construct of the team do we need to have? These kinds of things. So he's not. I don't think it's age related necessarily, or even maybe experience related. Just people have different needs at different stages. And if you know, if I went back and operated, I I would love to have a coach again and to bounce things off of somebody that you know is a thought partner and say, hey, what do you think about this or that? Because because the world's always evolving, like it's just always changing. It's so cool to hear about talent right in the Midwest. I know it often goes to the coasts and such, but proud that it's in Indiana and Wisconsin. So um, yeah. let's transition a little bit to something outside of work. It looks like you are a board member of quite a few boards. And so I'm just curious, what what do your those roles entail? How, does, how do you get asked to be on those boards? What do you feel like you contribute? Well, most of the boards are all work-related. So I've done, you know, a couple of not-for-profit boards and so forth through the years. Right now, I'm on the TechPoint uh, executive board. But yeah, for the most part, Crystal, those boards are all, we've made an investment and we've asked for a board seat. That was my follow-up question. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so we, we or, or maybe it's not even asked. We've said as a, content, you know, contingent to our investment, we'll take a board seat. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel like you are really directing, providing value have great influence on the board in those situations? You would have to ask them if we're adding value. <laughs> but yes, I feel like, like I try to be very accessible. So I feel like for at least a handful of companies where I'm on the board, and maybe every VC thinks this, I feel like I'm one of the first couple of calls or texts or Slack messages that you get. Cause I'll kind of like, I'll answer anytime, day or night. Cause it's kind of my hobby as well. And, um, and I will answer on, the most mundane of issues as well. You know, so, Hey, we're whatever. So what exactly does like, uh, so say you're, you know, you're raising venture capital for the first time in a VC from like the entrepreneur perspective, a VC says, Hey, we want to be on your board. Like what are the things that a VC or what are the things that an entrepreneur entrepreneur should ask the VC in that case about, okay, so what is that? What does that look like for, for the business? Like, what do you, yeah, what does being on a board mean for like a, a company that's raising their first couple rounds, let's say? Yeah, so let's presume that you have got the ability to get more than one term sheet. So if you only get one term sheet, you can ask a lot of questions and do a lot of due diligence. But if you need the money, you're going to you're gonna go like, okay, whether you're a jerk <laughs> or the greatest guy in the, or woman in the world, you're going to just do that. I think, so let's say you have two or, two or more term sheets then you should do due diligence. So yes, look at dilution. Yes, look at how much money you're getting, what the terms are and preemptive rights and all these things. But too many people, in my opinion, get too fixated on dilution, what the pre-money valuation is, these kinds of things. And they should really do due diligence on that board member and on that fund. And how do they engage? What happens when things go sideways? What if you need a bridge round? What if you're not going to meet payroll? What if you decide you want to sell the company early and find out what kind of person this is? And so ask them to talk to other CEOs that they've invested in. You know, go, go ask those people really hard questions. Like what, what is it like working with Grayson or what is it like working with Crystal on the board? And how is she done when you get to this stage or this situation? Every VC is going to tell you we're value add we got a whole network of follow-on investors and we got all kinds of introductions we can make and all these kinds. And some can do that more than others. You know, you go, whatever, OpenView's invested in a bunch of places in town, great firm. They have a whole bench of, uh, you know, a platform bench that you can get sales advice and all these things and smaller funds are not going to have that. But you should do your due diligence just like they're doing on you. And one other question there, are there things that you think that, Maybe your portfolio companies, maybe just portfolio companies in general, don't take enough advantage of with that kind of entrepreneur VC uh, relationship. Like, yeah, what are some of the things that you wish that more of your your fund team would would do? Yeah, like that? that's a great question. Part of this is trying to like you get so involved in the day to day and meeting your quarterly numbers or the issue where you know somebody's not performing and you have to terminate them or put them on a performance plan or hiring this. I think people need to step back more 
on occasion and and spend a little bit of strategy time with with either the entire board or a board member and think a little bit longer term and you know project out 18 months 24 months and think about those things i also think actually two things people this is not exactly your question but the biggest miss people have when they start a business is they're like i'm going to get a finance person you know a year from now i can still do all this in quickbooks and before you know it like that should be your right hand person if that is not your skill set and even if it is your skill set you should have that person early on day one metrics kpis you know go to the whiteboard or the virtual whiteboard all the time like hey what if we did pricing this way hey what if we hired this person or we did we we stop doing this marketing program what would that like you should have this kind of built-in fpna from the earliest stages people miss that all the time and then people don't value board meetings enough it's a pain in their ass every quarter they have to go create you know 50 slides and then it's like the routinization of it you know they they roll out every department and they go drone on for 30 minutes to me the perfect board meeting is kind of send us a pre-read three days before two days before do 20 minutes of the board meet of 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 like a formal board meeting and then do the next two hours the next hour and a half here's the three strategic topics i'm interested in i'm trying to land this huge customer what ideas do you have i'm i'm you know should we move from smb to enterprise and have it like use the brain power around the table as a sounding board and they're not going to be as smart as you on your all, all the elements of your day-to-day business but too often people just view board meeting as a pain in the ass and you got to, you know, trot out all these decks. And so I know that's not exactly the question you were asking Grayson, but that would be advice that I would, that I I give to folks and would like to see, they they still don't do it as often as I'd like. Yeah. And if they did, I bet they'd say that you were an extremely valuable board member as you wish. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's like, as I learned over the years as an operator role and going to board meetings, like that's like typically your board is relatively experienced, talented people that have different yes. skill sets than you. Yes. So, yeah. and you don't have to make it a three hour board meeting or four, like you got them there for a concentrated amount of time. They want to see certain things they invested, give them the metrics they want, hold them accountable for reading it beforehand and knowing about your business. So you're not re-educating them on your business every quarter. And then use it as a as a strategy session, sounding board session. Great advice. I've got one last question for you. Sure. I'm curious if someone wants to break into VC, can you give some advice on how to get into it? And if you're an early stage contributor, or I'm sorry, like an early individual contributor like us in our careers, yeah. um, how do we get in? Yeah. I'd say it's become more democratic in the last few years than it had been. It used to be this really kind of closed apprentice-like kind of system and people would go labor in their associate role or analyst role for years and then partners get old and eventually move on, but there weren't opportunities for people to move up in that. And you saw people coming in from a finance background or an investment banking background. I think there's been for the positive, more of a democratization. You have a lot more solo GPs right now. I think that would personally, I think it'd be really hard and lonely. Um, a solo GP just, you know, it's a one person kind of fund essentially. Um, you're seeing a lot more people that are coming out of, you know, they've been a product person at a company and they've done really well with product and they find a way to um, move into some type of role, you know, whether it's, if you depending on kind of the level of your career and so forth at a partner level or you're an associate level or a principal level or an analyst level. So I think you're seeing more and more of that opportunity become available. It's, it's still, it still is a cottage industry of sorts. Um, and there are not necessarily traditional ways, but, I, but also I think it's raising your hand, getting involved. I think the things like generator, tech point or not tech point um tech stars a, a lot more of these kinds of elements have made it easier people will go in and be like a, a managing director for tech stars for a specific kind of discipline or they'll be a generator 
And then those allow you to move into um, other kinds of firms. And there's so many firms right now that are out there. I mean, th there's probably been 1500 firms over the last five years have been started. Now, I think a lot of those may not survive the next five years, but you'll still get others that are coming in. So I, I, that wasn't a clear answer, Crystal, but there's, you know, you don't have, there's not necessarily a specific path to jump into it. And so I think a lot of it is reach out to people, talk to them, see what they're looking for in their team. Cause there are a lot of earlier roles that are around things like, sorry here, uh, th that are around disciplines like product or finance or even engineering that, that people are finding their ways into, into venture. Going back to your advice, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. That's my big takeaway for today. I love it. Yeah. Yep. Be opportunistic. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on. I want to make sure you have the opportunity to plug uh, anything and everything. Where should people find you? Then Twitter, you've got a, a book coming out or, or anything anytime soon. Um, no books. I'm not a very social pro prolific uh, <laughs> person, but yeah, LinkedIn's probably uh, the best way to uh, find me and, uh, and engage from that perspective. So Awesome. Well, cool. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm sure like I'm excited to get this out to the world. And yeah, this was a great episode. So I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It was a fun, fun discussion. It was wonderful. Well, thank thanks, you. David. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.